started. So we've been in 1 Samuel, and I want to remind you, we, several weeks ago, we finished Ruth, and Ruth was birthed in the day of the judges, and y'all remember how nasty judges was. You had gang rape and, and sex crimes and nasty culture and just awful toxic uh, civilizations, and that's where Ruth was kind of born from, and in uh, out of Ruth comes this story of 1 Samuel. They kind of link up in a good bit. As a matter of fact, about the time Ruth's son, Obed, had a son named Jesse, is about the time Samuel is kind of coming to frequency uh, here in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and 3 and 4. Now last week we ended with a little boy named Samuel who is essentially living inside of the tabernacle, right? at a town called Shiloh, which is over in Pelahatchee. Again, y'all know that. Um, so set up over there, and he is kind of the understudy of the high priest Eli. You know, Eli, we learned, is a very old, very obese man, uh, and he has uh, a couple of boys at least, two of them by name, Hophni and Phinei, uh, who are corrupt. Eli himself is passively corrupt. You understand when I say that? I don't think he's actively going out and messing things up, but he doesn't fix things when there's a problem. Uh, so he's passively corrupt, whereas his sons are actively corrupt. When the young women come to the tabernacle to offer their sacrifices and worship, they will deflower them. Okay? Uh, they take the sacrifices of the local population and they'll steal them uh, uh, under pain of getting beat up. They'll say, no, you've got to give the priest what, what is supposed to be the Lord's. So they're taking the Lord's uh, offering, the Lord's sacrifice. And it is in that context that Hannah has dropped off her baby boy, Samuel, to be raised by a passively corrupt high priest and an actively corrupt priesthood. And you have to ask the question, how in the world is this going to turn out anything but horrible? Well, we met last week, if you'll recall, who entered into the holy place with Samuel but an angel of the Lord, a.k.a. Jesus in the Old Testament. And he comes in and he begins to talk and to teach Samuel. Uh, the end of chapter 3 tells us that the Lord, verse 21, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. I told you last week, the word of the Lord, is it should clue us in. If you are reading the Bible from Genesis to the end, every time you meet something called the word of the Lord, we're not just talking about some uh, nameless, faceless, booming voice from heaven. There, there often appears a person who steps out, literally in this case for Samuel, steps out from behind the curtain of the holy place and says, hey, I want to talk to you. So the word of the Lord is something that appeared to Abraham, it's something that appeared to Samuel and to a couple other people. And again, no shock when we get to John chapter 1, and he starts his gospel with, in the beginning was the word. The word. the word was with God, and the word was God. So no shock there, right? So Jesus himself appears to be tutoring Samuel as he is growing up. We're going to meet uh, a completely different set of scenarios here in chapter uh, 4. And... If you can kind of put your mind on the fact that Samuel is somewhere, probably, and we're guesstimating here, in his late teens to early 20s. Okay? You, you, you with me? Uh, here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. That probably should be part of chapter 3. Uh, again, the, the chapter divisions are not inspired. Uh, a, a very diligent young monk did that for us, so... When I tell you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 4, you guys aren't rolling out 15-foot scrolls trying to figure out where you're supposed to be on Sunday school. So thank you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Monk, whoever that is. So the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. So Samuel is starting to get the reputation that if you want to hear a word from God, you go to Shiloh, but you don't speak to Eli, you don't speak to Hophni and Phinehas, you speak to Samuel. All right, so he's developing this reputation. Now, this story from here on is kind of a parenthetical story. Um, we don't really deal with Samuel in these next two chapters. We deal with something completely different. So it's kind of a parenthetical uh, thing. 
It says, now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. Now, uh, so we're in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Um, the, uh, the word Ebenezer is, doesn't come into play until a couple chapters later. So this is probably evidence that someone later on wrote this, probably Solomon, I think I told you that, and he's just putting the name down. The Philistines lived kind of at the southwest corner of what we know as Israel now, what we probably would call the Gaza Strip in this day and age. It backs up to that part of the Mediterranean uh, Sea, and there were five major Philistine cities, and they were fortified cities, so they were strong. These guys were kind of the, I don't call them bullies. Uh, they were bullies to Israel, but they were just strong. They were just strong cities. Uh, they were fortified. They were all Philistines, and they ran along what would essentially be uh, a major highway in that day and age. And the Philistines kind of dominated that territory, and when they wanted to, they would come over and they would take stuff from the Israelites, especially in that region, take their property, take their food, uh, take their women, take their children. Whatever they wanted, they would take. Um, in certain places, it got so bad that the Philistines actually enacted a law to where they could not have any weapons. The Israelites couldn't have any weapons. And even the plows and the sheaths uh, or the uh, scythes that they used to cut the wheat, uh, they, wouldn't even have, they wouldn't even allow a blacksmith to live in the Israelite cities. The Israelites would have to go over to the Philistines to get them sharpened and repaired. So they wanted to, to disarm the Israelites as much as possible, and that's where the Philistines are. They are strong, and they are capable of just eliminating the possibility of an uprising. So they, they go out to war here, and verse, same, first Samuel chapter 4, verse 2. So the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Another time out here. How many people did they kill? About 4,000. So this is important to understand. When you're reading the Old Testament especially, this is an ancient Hebrew text. We are looking at it from a very precise 21st century Western mindset. Eastern culture, especially ancient Eastern culture, loves to speak in hyperbole. 12-year-old okay? girls and 12-year-old boys love to speak in hyperbole. How was your day? It was the worst day ever. <laughs> right? How hot? It's like a million degrees outside. Right? So we, they speak in hyperbole. So when they had a really, really big defeat, they didn't go out and count noses. Right? 3,999. So the word thousand, and this is true across the Old Testament, could mean any number of things. It could literally mean 4,000 people. It could. That's that potential. It's highly doubtful that's what it means. There are some texts where 1,000 is used to indicate a certain community. Like, a, um, so the, <clears throat> it's just an example. So we're going to go to battle, and Brandon uh, gets up 1,000 soldiers, or, or gets up a group of people, right? So we're going to go fight a battle. Pilahatchee gets up a group of guys. And Brandon gets up a couple guys, Pearl gets up a, guy, a couple guys, and, uh, and then Flowood gets up a couple, couple folks, and we all go fight a battle. And we're just wiped out. A generic term for getting wiped out would be a thousand from Pilahatchee, a thousand from uh, Brandon, a thousand from Flowood, and a thousand from Pearl all die. Now, who would that affect disproportionately, by the way? If a thousand people from all four of those community dies, who would disproportionately be affected? Pilahatchee, why? Because they're small. So the chances of a thousand people from each group being destroyed is probably pretty slim. It's probably indicating that a group of men from certain tribes or certain military units were killed. So we're going to deal with another number problem when we get to the end of this lesson, but numbers aren't always precise in the Hebrew text. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? So 4,000 men died. It could mean as little as 400 or 40. But what they're saying is, in proportion to how many went out to fight, it was a bad day. It was a really bad day. So 4,000 died um, in that battle. Verse 3. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, 
Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. This tells us that the Israelites' concept of spirituality was profoundly warped. Okay? They had a religious understanding of God, but they didn't understand the process of actually worshiping God correctly. So they knew that God was in Shiloh. They knew the Ark of the Covenant had something to do with God. Um, but they had begun to treat Shiloh and treat the priesthood and treat the Ark of the Covenant as a almost like a, a lucky rabbit's foot. Right? <clears throat> so they weren't, they weren't going to God going, what have we done wrong? How can we repent? And how will God, you make this right? They're going to God as a lucky rabbit's foot and going, Oh, no, we lost. Oh, God must be mad at us. We'll go get God and bring him here, and then we'll, we'll bring his priest, and then he'll see that we love him, and then he will let us win. Okay, that's essentially what they do. Um, verse 4, so the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of hosts who, uh, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, Phineas, were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, why are these two boys with the Ark? Give me speculate why these two guys would go with the Ark. Who's their daddy? Eli the, the high priest. So speculate why his two boys are with the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, maybe to represent the high priesthood. What else? Probably so. Probably some fringe benefits. That's a good way of putting it. Um, they, they get the Mr. Pip popularity contest, right? Because if they believe that this is, God lives in this box, and they've begun to think that, God lives here. We're going to bring where God lived here, and then God will be here. How much more favorable to bring God's people with him? All right, so hop me and Phineas. Hop on that gravy train with biscuit wheels and ride right on down to the battlefront and go, you know what? Uh, we're going to get some fringe benefits from this, whether it be a, a, a popularity contest or other uh, potential uh, good things could happen to us. So verse 4, or, or verse 5 again. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded, right? So literally like, I mean, the, the earth vibrated and shook. Uh, I know many of y'all have been to a packed out SEC football game before. Yes? You've been there? Right? Um, I, I know Ole Miss has the Grove. I know State has the Junction. Southern Miss, they have like the sidewalk outside the stadium. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But when something really great happens and there's this big uproar, right, you, you, you know before the TV shows up on the Grove that something good has happened over there. All right? So you can hear like this reverberation happen. And the Philistines are over on their side of the, the mountain, and the Israelites are, are, are religiously simulated. They're like, whoa, God is here. And they're very excited. Is this a, is this a good thing for them? What well, they think it is. And they, you know, they, they shake the earth with their praises and with their excitement, and it actually freaks the Philistines out. Look what it says, verse 6. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come upon, had come into the camp, and the Philistines were afraid. So they had some working knowledge. We're going to see in a minute how broken it is. But they had some working knowledge of the, the gods that were over Israel. Did you all hear me say that, that term plural? Okay. They, were, they had a working knowledge of those gods over there. At least they thought they did. So verse um, 7, the Philistines were afraid. They said, God has come into the camp. Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. They've never brought the big guns out. This is terrifying. We've gone and fought the Philistines before, and you know they'll have a good warrior come out, a good a judge or a good leader will come out and lead them into battle, lead them into victory. But they've never brought out God and, like, Ooh, we're in trouble. Verse 9. So they take, uh, or verse 8. Woe to us. Who shall deliver us from the hands of these mighty gods? 
They think that the Israelites have many. There are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues, where? In the wilderness. Now, is that where God, is that where God sent the plagues? In the wilderness? To the Egyptians? No, no. Where did God send the plagues uh, to the Egyptians? Right, right. So they have a working knowledge, kind of like, you know, you know when George Washington and George Patton got together and fought uh, the Civil War, right? Right? So they have some of the names and details right, but all the particulars are a little bit muddled for them. So they talked to a Jew, right? Uh, a buddy of theirs was a Jew from over across the street, and they were talking religion one day, and, and somebody has re replicated this story. They know something about the God of Israel or the gods of Israel, and they know something out there, and they know God lives in the ark. Why do they think that? Because the Jews of that day think that, because their understanding of spiritual matters is fairly corrupted. They're not, they're not good Jews at this point, right? They're not faithful religious people. And, and, and so they're a little weirded out. Verse 9, so they, they, they get scared, and then one of them pokes his chest out and says, Hold on, guys. Hold on. Look, this is not going to... We're Philistines, okay? We, we are a warrior clan. We are a tribe that knows how to fight fights. Verse 9, take courage and be men, O Philistines. I say, come on, grow up, man. Be a man. Um, so this is that kind of Josh has been going about for uh, thousands of years, right? Or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. I love that. He's like, hey, look, you better man up or they're going to do to us what we've been doing to them. And it's been some pretty bad stuff, right? It's kind of like when the little brother grows up to be bigger than the bigger brother was. This is not good, right? Because the big brother always picked on the little brother, and now big brother is big and, big and strong. He's like, I changed my mind. I think we ought to be friends now. So the Philistines are like, you better figure this out. Okay, because we don't want them to do to us what we've been doing to them for all these years. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. Every man fled to his tent and the slaughter was very great. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. There's a number again. Did 30,000 people die? Let me help you with some numbers. There are more people in the United States of America today than covered the entire globe in this time in human history, okay? So for us, if 100,000 people died of the flu, we'd go, oh, that's a pretty normal year for us. Isn't that a crazy number? That'd be, that'd be a bad flu season, would it not? But fairly within the statistical norm. If 100,000 people died in this day and age, uh, a good chunk of the world population, and at very least of that area of the world, would be nearly wiped out. Okay, So again, knowing the Hebrew norm, which is to speak in hyperbole, to go over the top, when they say 30,000 foot soldiers died, is there a likelihood that 30,000 people died? There's a possibility. I don't think if you're taking in the whole scope of the context of this time and, and place, a lot of people died. It was bad. How many tribes are there? Twelve. Okay? So every tribe was affected. Deeply. Deeply affected. Nearly 2,500 from every tribe, if it worked out as a law of averages, lost a whole generation of men. Okay? So something bad really happened at this. They were profoundly routed in battle. And the ark of God in verse 11 was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, what? Died. So I would imagine that they're in a tent with the ark of the covenant, and they're cowering down, and their bodyguards, they hear the clanging of swords out there in the front, and they're like, okay, hopefully we're going to win. God, rise up and save us. And then in, in walk the Philistines. And then they kill the priests, and they capture the ark. Now something... Kind of interesting happens here in verse 12. It says, Now a man of, of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. Um, up until probably even World War I, um, all, all general staffs that were running battles and wars had runners. Okay? 
they had people who would literally run messages to the front line. There was no radio communication. You had some flags and some signals, but for the most part, um, in a battle, you had a runner. Uh, one of the reasons why Robert E. Lee was so profoundly defeated in Gettysburg is because his runners weren't properly communicating his message to his new generals. But what you would do is the general would go, okay, we need, uh, we need, the, we need the east flank to advance two clicks. And he would, someone, someone would write that down, general says, and he would hand it to a runner, and the runner would hop on a horse or, depending on the, the, the topography, would just haul off running, right, as fast as they could. Um, so you need someone who is slender, maybe someone who is above average height, so they can cover a lot more territory. They want to run, 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 run. The, uh, the historic concept of the marathon, do you all know where that came from? All right, it came from when a battle was won, and they sent a runner to not send another group of battalion, another, another fighting force, and the guy ran to the city of Marathon, and he dropped down dead. So apparently wasn't that good of a runner. Um, so he ran 26 miles, delivered the message, and died, and now we run a marathon in his name. Yay. Okay? Yeah. So um, a, a tall Benjamite was handed this message, and as he goes, he tears his clothes, he throws dust on his head because he's in an act of mourning, and he takes off running to get back to Shiloh. Does anybody know a tall Benjamite anywhere else in the text? There was a young man who was selected to be the first king of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, whose name was Saul, and he was described as being a head above everyone else. Rabbinical tra tradition, rabbi teaching tradition, says that this runner is, is, likely, or is likely Saul. We don't have, the text doesn't say that, but the uniqueness of calling a Benjamite, they've never named a runner before, right? You don't, you don't, he's just a, he's just a, he's just a runner, but they named him by name. So this was a unique guy. So there was an interesting detail added there. Some rabbis think this was Saul. I don't, don't know if it is, but I think it's a cool story, right? Uh, but anyway, there it is. Verse 13. Um, when he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching. So they'd move big fat Eli's uh, chair out by the gate because he was extremely nervous about the Ark of the Covenant going out. Um, his heart was trembling for the Ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise, and keep in mind, previous texts have told us that he is, is hard of, he can't see very well, okay? So he, doesn't, he can't see the commotion so much as he can hear it. Eli heard the noise of the outcry. He said, what does the noise of this commotion mean? And the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old. His eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, Eli said, how did it go, my son? And the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has been a great slaughter among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. When the runner mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. He was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel 40 years. The, the life and times of big, fat, blind Eli ended just like he fell off the back of his chair. Broke his neck. Done. Continue on. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was pregnant, and she was about to give birth. All right? She was in the late stages of her pregnancy. Uh, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. So she had a stress-induced labor. Okay? Now, what is interesting, not interesting, but what I think the sad reality is, this woman had married into a priestly tribe, right? Which probably tells us that she was of a Levite birth as well. That's probably what's going on there. She was the daughter-in-law of the high priest, wife of one of the priests that had the high potential of becoming the future high priest, and she was giving birth to a son. Was she important in this process? And in one, one moment, what did she find out? The religious 
uh, pinnacle uh, symbol of our nation, the Ark of the Covenant, gone. High priest, dead. Husband, dead. Where did she go from the pecking order? From the top all the way to the bottom. And she knelt down and in her, in her stress and in her labor delivered this child. And verse 20, about the time of her death, uh, about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said, um, do not be afraid for you have given birth to a son. Now look at that text real closely. About the time of what? Her death. So what happened? Yeah, she gave birth and she was, how, how bad is the stress on this family? Like it went for, I mean, it went zero to a hundred in a, in a heartbeat. At least to them it did. Um, and about the time of her death, she says, she says, don't be afraid for you've given birth to a son. Why would that, why should that give her a reason to not be afraid? You've had a boy. The, the, the line can continue. That's what, that's what she was trying to be. She was trying to, you know, hey, I know you're fixing to die, but you're, you had a son, and your name's going to go forward. And she rolled over. Look what she said. She called the boy Ichabod. Now, now where do we know Ichabod in our culture? Yeah, Sleepy Hollow. Ichabod Crane, right? Uh, the, the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Ichabod Crane. Uh, what does he look like? Visualize him. Goofy looking, tall, skinny, right? Y'all watch Disney cartoons, right? Is that is just me? Right, just a tall, goofy-looking guy. He's he's anyway, he's bad with the ladies, but anyway, scares easy. The word Ichabod in Hebrew literally means uh, no glory, like the like Elvis has left the building. Um, and she named him Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, she said the glory has departed from Israel. The ark of God was taken. So is this kid going to be the high priest? No. She literally named him No Glory. We went from being the family of glory to the family with no glory. This kid will be an orphan and be raised by whoever will pick him up. And his name is forevermore No Glory. Now, verse uh, 1 of chapter 5 tells us the story of what happens to the ark. This must have been something that the Philistines chronicled and wrote down. Because what's about to happen in chapter 5 is hilarious if you're not a Philistine, okay? If you're on God's side, you're like, yeah, God, get them. Um, so they, they must have written this down, and uh, perhaps when David, before he was king, he was on the run from then Saul, the king, and he interacted for about 15 or 20 years in the service of the Philistine warlord. Does that surprise you? Surprises me. David's working for, for the Philistines. And um, he must have heard this story of that time the Ark of the Covenant came to, 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 to Philistine, and it was no bueno. And perhaps he either collected scrolls of this story or retold this story um, because the Jews have no reason to know all the details of what happened. But the, the Philistines kept records, and, uh, and somehow I think David and then later Solomon, who, who wrote out this story in detail, He's putting it all together in a clean timeline, right? But they didn't know in Israel what was going on. But here in chapter 5, we get this, this little interesting thing. It says, Now the Philistines took the ark of God, and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, which is a Philistine city. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. So Dagon uh, is one of their uh, tribal gods, and... Um, uh, they have a temple there for Dagon, and they set the Ark of God next to Dagon. Why? He's another God, He's another God right? <laughs> Might as well worship him too. We'll worship both, but we're going to send him beside Dagon because Dagon's the true God. Our God conquered their God, but their God clearly has power. We've heard about it, and uh, and so we'll worship both, and then we'll just we'll just we'll just. But he's over here, and uh, and so that's what happened. When verse three. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him back in his place again. So they come in the next morning, the priests look around, and go, oh, oh, oh no, Dagon has fallen like he is bowing before the God of Israel. Well, that's no good. We're going to prop him back up. Hey, no harm, no foul. Hey, uh, don't put that in the clarion ledger. 
write it down because that could be important later. Right? This is not good. Why is Dagon bowing before the God of Israel? It's okay. It's okay. It just happened one time. No worries. Uh, verse 4. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And this time the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold and only the trunk of Dagon was left. Now this is very common when we think of like ancient Greek or Roman uh, architecture or statues. What is often missing from those statues? The head, the hands, uh, fingers, toes, case of men, penises. Those are all those things that kind of, that are fragile, kind of just kind of hanging out there. When the, when the earthquake happens or someone bumps them, they break and fall off, okay? This is very common. So not overwhelmingly shocking that his head fell off, but it is interesting that they recorded it in such a way that his head and his hands snapped off. Now, uh, what you do and what you say and think, all this right here broke off and landed on, what did it specify here? Where did it land? The threshold. The threshold. Now, let's start with what we know and work our way backwards. Um, what is interesting about a threshold in our culture? When you think about a threshold, what, what, what image comes to mind? It's the entryway, okay? I think of the groom carrying the bride. All right. The groom carries his bride where? Over. over. He has to, right, pick up, and he over the, why don't we do that? So she won't trip and fall. Right, because it's very practical that way. Uh, why, why don't we do that? Because that's, that's something that we, even if you did or did not do, you're aware that that's out there. It's kind of a thing. Why is that? No. Symbolizes the transition. Oh, okay. It does do that. Why? Where does that come from? Okay. So uh, I'm looking around the room. I'm going to document this on the recording. All of you people are white. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we came. We come from a European descent, right? Uh, many of us come from a Welsh, Scot, Irish, British background, especially Irish and Scot. Uh, in the Celtic tribes. They had a, um, a huge superstition or mythology over the threshold as it was a sacred space when you transition from one universe to the next or one cosmology to the other, from the physical to the spiritual. Okay? So they were very careful to always step over because that was God's domain. So when Dagon falls on this threshold and his head snaps off, what did they think? They thought this will never more will we step uh, on this threshold. Verse five: Neither the priest of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashtod to this day. They regarded that because Dagon had fallen before the God of Israel on the threshold, the threshold belonged to God. They could no longer walk on it. That was God's territory. Now let's go back a little bit further in, in Hebrew history in our Bible. How was the first Passover enacted? What was the actual methodology they did to indicate the Passover was happening? Okay. Doorpost, the lentil. And where would the blood have fallen? Right at the threshold. And because that blood covered the threshold, what would happen or what would not happen to that home? Death wouldn't come in. The angel of death wouldn't pass over that threshold. That was a markation at the threshold. It's interesting terminology. We see this. I wrote it here. First uh, Kings 18, 21. Don't turn there. But Elijah is a prophet in a couple more chapters. And he is at a place called Mount Carmel. And he is up there as the lone priest before God, prophet before God. And Baal had a ton of priests. And Elijah turns to the Jews and goes, why are you halting between two opinions? Right? Why do you keep going between God of Israel and Baal? Stop doing that. But that, that passage can actually be rendered, quit hopping across both thresholds. He's saying, stop going into the temples of Baal and then going into God's temples. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Quit going between two, God, two worlds. There's one world. 
So in this passage, they, even the Philistines who were not in tune with what God was doing in this world were like, mm, this is God's domain now. The threshold is God's domain. The gateway into true worship, even they realized, was part of the God of Israel. Even though they didn't fully understand it. Verse 6. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, which is, again, a city in, in the Philistine area. And he ravaged them, and he smote them with tumors. Uh, that word there is, in Hebrew, is ophel or opel. It means swellings. Okay? We're going to talk in a minute about what that looks like. Uh, and the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites. He ravaged them, smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe, severe on us and on Dagon our God. He's wearing us out. He's wearing us out. And he's wearing Dagon out. We've got to get, we gotta get Dagon some relief, y'all. Yeah, yeah, that's what they were thinking. Verse 8. So they sent and they gathered all the lords of the Philistines. There were five of them, five kings, five kings of the nations uh, or the cities of, uh, of, uh, of there. What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And they brought the ark of the God of Israel around. Now, why Gath? Do we know anybody in the Bible that's from Gath? Goliath, Goliath is from Gath. Uh, who was the big daddy cheese when David came to fight Goliath? It was him. He's from Gath. Uh, he had a number of brothers and siblings that the text records are just as big and as bad as he was. This is like the South Panola <laughs> of the Philistine cities. Okay, They grow them big and strong. If anybody can handle the severe hand of the God of Israel, if any of us can do it, it'll be South Panola. Send them up there. Right? So, so they, send God, uh, they send God in the box. Over to Gath. And they're like, okay, okay, whew, okay, we're safe. Gath's got this covered. They're strong, they're big, they're smart, they're kind of, that's where they are. And uh, so they brought that around. Verse 9, and they, after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great confusion. And he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that the tumors, again, that swelling, broke out among them. So they sent the ark of the God to Ekron. Gath's like, yeah, nah. We're good. So they're like, we'll send it down the line. We'll just keep sending it down the line. Third city, number one. Ekron, hey, your turn, tag. You're it. And uh, Ekron, so whereas Gath may have been like the jocks, Ekron must have been the academics. They're like, uh, mm-mm, because look what happens. So they sent the, God, the ark of God to Ekron, and the ark of God came to Ekron. The Ekronites cried out, saying, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they wouldn't even let it in the gate. They're like, ah, ah, don't bring that up in here. Y'all stay out here. We're going to have to have a, a committee meeting, a committee on committees that talks about Ark of the Covenant business. And, and so they, they called their meeting again. And they sent, therefore, in verse 11, gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the Ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines seven months. Seven months is all they could handle. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, don't send it away empty. That's interesting. Don't send it away empty. What does that indicate that they did? They opened it. Now, later text, earlier texts tell us there were three things in the Ark of the Covenant. Can y'all remember this? The Ten Commandments of Moses, a, jar, a golden jar of manna, and what? Aaron's staff, which was an almond staff that had budded. And those three items were in the Ark. Later on uh, in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah, um, they would actually open the ark again. And only the, only the stone tablets were in there. So the only other time that the ark is recorded as being open or outside the possession of Israel was here. What did the Philistines do? What unleashed this curse upon them? 
They opened the ark. They took everything out. Okay? Now, this is just uh, my brain filtering information. They open it up, and there's a stick. <laughs> this must have fallen in here. A jar of what? What did the manna look like? Y'all recall what, what it was described? Flaky. If you didn't know what it was, what would it almost look like? Flour, sand, or something. Golden jar of sand. Dump the sand. Here, honey, keep the jar. All right? And then what's left? These stone tablets. And they're like, okay, well, we, we can kind of read those. Oh, this is what they believed. And they're like, we can't send this back empty. So they're like, oh, no. We, what do we do with that stick? <laughs> All right, we already burned it. Like, we already did it. It's a gone. Well, what about, what did, that grandma got buried in that jar. She's out. We, can't, we don't know where it is. So they put the stone tablets back in. That's the last time any any other two items were seen. So they said, look, 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 we, we've made a mistake. Let's not give it back empty. You will surely return to God a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. And they said, what shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to God uh, of Israel? And they said, five golden tumors, swellings, right? And five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for one uh, plague was on all of you and all of your lords. So all of them had at least two things in common, tumors, swellings, and mice. Many scholars believe this was the first, this is the first historical documentation of some type of bubonic plague. Y'all recall the Black Plague that covered the Middle East or the European states in the Middle Ages? And how did it get there? Fleas on the mice. And you can follow the trade routes and you can find wherever these mice landed. And guess where these mice never landed? In Jewish communities. Because they have very stringent ceremonial <laughs> cleansing laws. And at least once a week, they would clean all their pots and pans. They would clean all of their houses. They would leave no food remnants. They would burn everything. They were ritually extremely clean people. So during the, the Black Plague of the Middle Ages, all the Christian communities were crying out to God going, we're dying. We don't know what's, what's, we don't know what's happening. But all the Jewish communities were not suffering from the Black Plague. So guess what the good Christians did at that age? The, the, the Jews did this. So they were wiping out entire Jewish communities. Isn't that awful? That's, by the way, that's in our history. It's there. The ugly parts of Christian history. They're there. They're there. And so we would go out and wipe out entire Jewish communities. And guess what would show up when we moved in? The plague. So... Uh, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. But these, these fleas would bite uh, the patient, and their lymph nodes would swell up. Now, those of you who ever had like a really, really swollen lymph node, how does it feel? Purple. Hurt. Is it big? Is it, is it hard? Yeah. How does it feel like almost? Almost like a, a, tumor. a tumor. If you didn't know, you'd go, oh, my gosh, this tumor's grown up under here, or this tumor's grown up under here. Um, who has the new the, the King James Bible, by the way? So the King James translates this as as hemorrhoids. Yeah, isn't that fun? Uh, so the Lord struck them with perpetual hemorrhoids. So flea flea bites, mice, and a really bad case of hemorrhoids. No one could sit down. No one could stand up. No one could walk. Everyone, can we just please? No, you cannot bring that to this town. <laughs> Get that out of here. And so they're like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to send it back. We're going to make five golden mice, and they better be good mice, and five golden tumors, and they better be good tumors. And we're going to put them in a box. Let's read. Uh, so you shall make likenesses of your tumors and your likenesses of your mice that ravage the land. You shall give glory to the God of Israel, and perhaps he will ease this hand from you, your gods and your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? You don't want to be like them, guys. We, hey, seven months, get them out, get them gone. Um, we had, when he had severely dealt with them, and did they not allow the people to go? And they departed, and naturally the plagues departed. Now therefore take and prepare a new cart with two milked cows, on, on which there has never been a yoke, and the hit, hitch the cows to the cart, take their calves home and away from them. 
Take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, put the articles of gold which you return to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side and send it away that it may go. Uh, watch if it goes by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemash, which would have been the southernmost uh, border of the Philistine community. And guess what it is? Anybody want to know what it is? It's a Levite city. It just happens to be a city populated by priests. And that, that's pretty cool, right? And so what they said, look, take two cows that have never been yoked. They've never, they're not plow cows. These are milk cows. And, and, and hide their calves at home. By the way, why would you do that? What, what, would a, what would a mom cow do if her baby calf was locked away? What happens to that cow? What, what's happening to the udder? I'm like they're, they're, someone's gonna take this milk from me. I'm gonna die, right? So I'm gonna have to be milked. Right? So they go and they try to find the calves. Like you guys, it relieves some burden here, right? But they they said, look, here's the test. We'll take two milk cows who aren't supposed to be plow cows, put them on a cart, and if these cows walk away, we'll know that that God is sending them away. Because these cows wouldn't naturally walk away from their calves for a lot of reasons. But we're going to send them this direction. If they go, then, then this is God's will. So, uh, verse 10. The men did so, took two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, shut up their calves at home. They put the ark of the Lord in the cart and the box with the golden mice and the likenesses of their tumors. Thank you for the hemorrhoids. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemash. They went along the highway, lowing as they went. Why were they lowing? Because they're milk cows. Someone milk us, please. We're going to die. Um, and as they went, they did not turn to the right or to the left, which for cows that are for ho even horses that have never been trained and they've been yoked together, you've got to train horses to pull. You've got to train cows and, and, and oxen to pull. These went straight to it. So this is indicating what God did. And the Lord of the Philistines followed them to the border of Beth Shemesh. And the people of Beth Shemesh, which are priests, were reaping their wheat harvest. What is the wheat harvest called? What is the wheat harvest called? What holiday surrounds it for the Jews? It's called Pentecost. On their celebration of when a new harvest come, and for the Christian, when the Spirit of God came to be resting upon the church, they're out there celebrating what should have been the coming of the Lord, and what rolls up? The Ark of the Covenant. And they're like, woo! Okay, I see what you're doing, God. I see it. Verse 11, um, or uh, sorry, verse uh, 13. The people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they raised their eyes and saw the Ark and were glad to see it. The Ark came into the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite. Yeshua. What's the Greek version of Yeshua? Jesus. That's interesting. But the ark shows up, and, and, and there's a Jesus around to see it. Um, and he stood there with, with where there was a large stone. And they split the wood of the cart, offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites, why Levites? Because it's a, it's a Levite town. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it, in which were the articles of gold. They put them on the large stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they turn, return to Ekron that day. By the way, this would have scared the bejeebies out of me, right? I'm a Levite out here cutting wheat, and the five kings, do you think they came by themselves? No, they came with their entourage. Five kings of the Philistines riding a little light in the saddle, right? <laughs> uh, and they roll up, and they just kind of stand there at the border as the cows walk. And they just kind of watch for a minute, and they go, okay, all right. All right, they got the ark. Okay. Okay, that must have been God. We're going home now, and we're going to sleep. And hopefully these hemorrhoids are going to go away. All right? Um, verse 17. These are, the gold, uh, these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering for the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, um, belonging to the five lords, both of the fortified cities of the country of village uh, uh, and of country villages. The large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite. In the days of Solomon, that was probably like a tourist attraction, 
we can put it that way. Like you can go there. It happened here. All right, they had a little plaque, you know, on this stone, and the five hemorrhoid kings were over there, and it was a really, anyway. Um, now, verse 19 is, it gets curious. We're going to go to the end of this, and we're going to stop. He struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. What did they do? They opened the box and said, oh, golden mice. Golden whatever these are. These are weird. What's this? Hey, Bill, what's this? <laughs> and they're like, well, what? Why did they open the Ark of the Covenant? Why do you think they did? Number one, curiosity killed the cat, right? But what other reason? Remember, this is in the days of the judges. Are these guys read up on their Old Testament? No. They know the Ark of the Covenant is important. They may never get to see this again. Hey, hey, Tom, what's in there? Right? And y'all saw Ark of the Covenant with the Indiana Jones, right? You saw that movie, right? The explosion, face melting. All right. Uh, you saw all that. He struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the Ark of the Lord. He struck down all of the people. Uh, what does your Bible say? How many men were struck down? Some of y'all have a rendering that says 70. Some of y'all have a rendering that says 50,070. Um, here's the problem. Uh, no archaeological find in this area indicates a civilization as large as 50,000 anywhere near it ever lived. Again, this is Hebrew hyperbole. 70 men in a small town? What would that have done? Pretty devastating. I, I grew up out in Sand Hill, Pisgah community, okay, out before it was as cool as it is now, uh, like back in the day. 70 men die in that community in one day? It's pretty devastating. That's pretty doggone devastating. Um, what is the text trying to indicate, I think? It was devastating. It was, devastating. It was big. It was a big blow to uh, the Beshemite community. And the people mourned before the Lord because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the, the Lord, this holy God, to whom shall we go up from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, which was a bigger Levite city north. Okay? So they, call, they called in. They phoned a friend. They're like, Hey, we need some help. Can you, can you send some resources? And saying, the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down here and take it up to you. And here we end chapter uh, 6. We have an incredible thing happening here. God will not be mocked. Either by the enemies of God or by his own people. We must approach God the way he demands to be approached. And that is with holiness and perfection. And everyone who's attempted to do so to this point has died. This is why we need Jesus, the Savior. We cannot approach him. We can't. We can't do anything that he says that we must do to be his followers, which is why he came to meet us in the cross. And he says, if you will repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Jesus would become the future, greater, better Ark of the Covenant. That makes sense. But we have a lot of history here. We're going to pick up in chapter 7 next week. And, uh, and that's that. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for 1 Samuel. We thank you for the big...